I put it to you, Greg. Isn't this an indictment of our entire American society? Well, you can do what you want to us, but we're not going to sit here and listen to you badmouth the United States of America. Gentlemen! It's a hell of a thing, killing a man. You take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have. Yeah. Well, I guess they had it coming. We all have it coming, Jet. Sonny. Sonny, they said on a TV, two homosexuals in the bank, right on TV. Honey, you hear what they said? What difference does it make? They're gonna say anything they want. Let them say. Homosexual. You tell him to get that right. Now that's 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 going out on the TV. Sal, what am I supposed to do? You know, I can't control what they say on television. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Smell, you know that gasoline smell. Oh hell. It smells like victory. Don't worry about me! I'm Charles Foster Kane! You know, Billy, we blew it. What? <laughs> what, what, what? That's what it's all about, man. I mean, like, you know. I mean, you go for the big money, man, and then you're free. You dig? <laughs> we blew it. Hello, welcome once again to Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. Uh, this is June 15th, 2020. We're recording this episode, and uh, I am one of your co-hosts, Philip, from the state of New Hampshire, and with me in the state of Virginia. This is Barrett. Let me rephrase. Commonwealth of Virginia. <laughs> yes, the Commonwealth. There's only two, uh, Massachusetts and from Virginia. Yep. Um so, uh, for folks who are new to the podcast, uh, this is a podcast that was uh, on hiatus for a bit, but it's back now. Uh, basically, we discuss um, all sorts of uh, genre and cult films, uh, reviews, critique, uh, not necessarily straight horror, um, but definitely older type horror films that have been released on DVD or Blu-ray remastered, all sorts of things like that. And uh, sometimes we try to get in some news as well. Um, but uh, um, that's pretty much it there. For other f information, you can find the podcast on uh, Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews RSS feed, wherever podcasts are found. Or Dark Discussions podcast feed as well, wherever podcasts are found. Because the website is darkdiscussions.com. Because this is a, uh, I guess, a sister podcast um, of uh, Dark Discussions podcast, which is the original. And this podcast is generally 
a monthly podcast, sometimes bi-monthly. And you can email us at darkdiscussions at AOL.com and give us your feedback, your questions, your suggestions, your own reviews that you would like us to read on this podcast. And also what you think of maybe our topics and your own opinion on those topics. And then you can also join the Dark Discussions Podcast Facebook group where you can actually um, join the conversation where all things genre are discussed. Uh, so various things such as uh, the pushback of films like Wonder Woman 84 and A Quiet Place 2, among other things like that, as well as uh, the new Event Horizon Scream Factory announcement. And so there's some discussion on that and things of that nature. Um, so that's who we are and uh, this is actually um, uh, a special month in uh, in the year for the LGBTQ community because it's a uh, Pride Month, and uh, like uh, the one from a year ago, uh, where we, it was reviewed, were six or seven uh, films, LGBTQ films specifically, L or lesbian films, uh, and we're trying to do uh, quote unquote serious films rather than the blood and boobs grindhouse lesbian films of yesteryear because of course uh, uh pride month is is obviously a um serious topic though nothing against uh the grindhouse lesbian films um so uh barrett uh, how's everything going over on your side down in uh virginia ah uh, pretty much the same as everywhere else everything's trying to open up and <laughs> we'll see how that goes Yes, 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 absolutely. Uh, yeah, so this month here we're going to do two films, uh, but separate episodes. Uh, tonight's episode, we're going to focus on one LGB, or let's just say lesbian film, and then uh, the next episode will be a different lesbian film, and both of them will be uh, released hopefully in June. Uh, this one actually, if I'm lucky, I'll get it out within 48 hours, um, just so it'll be timely. Um all right. Uh, any any anything you wanted to bring up before we get into our topic? Nope. All right. So I guess we can get into our topic tonight. So, uh, Barrett, what are we going to discuss tonight? We are going to discuss the movie My Summer of Love. It came out in 2004. Um, and here's a little blurb from IMDb. Um, in the Yorkshire countryside, working class tomboy Mona meets the exotic pampered Tamson. Over the summer season, the two young women discover they have much to teach one another and much to explore together. What's your name? Mona. I'm Tamsin. Drop by if you're bored. I'm here all summer. So it's just you and your brother in your pub? He went inside and he came out funny. He went to prison. If I can be saved, anybody can be saved. I have prayed for my sister, because I know she's in turmoil. Apparently I'm a bad influence on people. God, you're quite beautiful. Who is it? I think it's your brother. He's a very attractive man, your brother. There's something with that girl going on inside her. I love her. She loves me. We're going away together. Are you ready? Yes. Serious? Yes. 
Not joking. Not joking. Okay. I have a real problem believing in anything. Ask the Lord to come into your heart. Very well. What's going on, Pam? Yeah, this is that's a kind of bizarre because I, I don't know if Moan or the character we'll discuss all the characters uh, is really a tomboy, but uh, yeah, uh, I didn't we'll, really get that feeling. Yeah, I didn't either. Uh, but let's get some background uh, for this film first. Uh, the first film, as you mentioned, was a 2004 film. Uh, it's actually uh, directed by um, an Academy Award. Uh, winning director, or uh, at least some of his films, uh, uh, Paul Polikowski, uh, who is actually uh, a Polish filmmaker uh, who uh, basically lived his most of his entire life, in, or at least his adult life, in uh, England prior to uh, recently getting a, a residency back in Poland a few years ago. Um, he uh, was well known for doing documentaries before he got into um, regular cinema. And generally, um, all his films are, are considered pretty pretty uh, well by critics. Uh, his first film was uh, The Last Resort in 2000, starring Patty Considine, who uh, actually is one of the stars of this film. Uh, My Summer of Love was 2004 the woman in the fifth is 2011 uh then 2013 was ida which was um a fantastic film that won an academy award for best foreign language film um back in 2013 as as i mentioned uh and it was actually um his first uh i believe polish language film after doing um english the films the the prior Three and then uh, his next film was 2018 Cold War, uh, which was a, another uh, Polish language film and uh, was nominated for uh, best uh, film, best cinematography, and best director. Uh, so as you can see, he's been uh, nominated for best director as well. Um, also. Um, he has a new film in post-production called Limonov. For the other stuff that's interesting about this film is uh, this is Emily Blunt's uh, first uh, motion picture. Uh, prior to this, she had done uh, some TV movies and a lot of stage work. Uh, so she was actually uh, pretty, um, I guess, uh, well-known uh, in the acting community, if not the audience uh, until uh, this film here. This is a film that uh, brought her to uh, note, notice. Um, also, Natalie Press. Uh, this was actually her first feature-length film as well, and then she's gone on to do uh, character roles in various TV and 
uh, motion pictures. And then Patty Considine uh, is the other star of this film who's done a number of uh, stuff over in the UK. Uh, has directed uh, a film that, that it was well-received as well and has been in uh, a lot of roles, even in Hollywood, as, as a supporting actor. Um, and that's pretty much all I got for information um, on the film, uh, though it was based off a book called My Summer of Love by Helen Cross, which is um, loosely based on it because there, there's some uh, changes. Um, all right, so I guess we can get on to how we heard about this film and uh, what we thought about it. And uh, let's start with you, Bert. Um, I had never heard of this film before you, but you're a big Emily Blunt fan, so uh, you told me about it and said we were going to watch this one for our first movie, and I took a look at it. Um, I I enjoyed it. I wouldn't say it's my type of film to watch most of the time, um, but it, it was good. It was well-directed um, and interesting. All right, very well. Um, yeah, for me... Um yeah, I actually uh, heard about it when it first came out and uh, bought the DVD when it first was available. Um, so that, that's been uh, a, a good many years now. So I think my DVD is probably almost 15 years old. Um, it's uh, a film that uh, um, I, I think is fantastic. Um, uh, I, it it was a uh, curiosity at the time because Emily Blunt was a, was not even known and Paul Polakowski was uh, barely known as well. Um, and it kind of projected uh, both of their, uh, or rocketed their, their stars in a sense uh, because of this film here. Um, yeah, when I saw it, um, this is the first time I have ever seen Emily Blunt, obviously, um, because it was her first feature-length film. And, uh, yeah, right at that moment, I knew she was going to be a star. And sure enough, uh, a few years later, when she started popping up in big Hollywood budget films, it did not surprise me. Um, yeah, and, and she's actually my favorite actress anyway. So you're absolutely right, Barrett, that um, I follow <laughs> her. But but oddly, this wasn't one of those films that I went back to after I found out Emily Bunt from yeah, like you had seen it heard beforehand. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so this is uh, my third time watching it. I rewatched it last night um, because I, I had watched it right before I uh, got married. Well, when when I bought the disc, so that was you know like fourteen years ago, and then I watched it again like three years ago, and then uh, and because I was going to possibly use it as one of the Halloween boutique psychotronic review films back um, in the prior uh, LGBTQ pride month episode I did, but um, I didn't have enough space. So I recorded it, but I, I never added it because uh, it would have made the, a lengthy episode. Um, and then um, uh, uh, I, I watched it, like I said, again uh, the other night. And then um, my wife wanted to watch it like eight years ago because she thought it was uh, a love story. And I said, no, it's not. So we, so we never watched it. Um, but I probably should have had her watch it because it is a good film. Anyway. It's kind of a love story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's it's really more than that. Um, yeah, it's and it doesn't a, turn out that way. So. No, no, it's, it's more of a, what would you call it, a uh, 
a, cla- Maybe a, a coming class. of age. I was yeah, a coming of age film. Yeah, all right. That's good. Yeah, coming of age film. Uh, there's, there's a bunch of stuff about Christianity. There's also uh, stuff about class, poor versus wealthy, especially in um, the, I guess, the uh, bourgeois versus uh, Cockney folk uh, of England. Uh, so, so it has a lot of things to, that it talks about. Um, but yeah, coming of age, that's a really good, good, uh, uh, term, uh, for the film. I didn't even think of that. Well, and I think that because the, the main actress, um, Mona, she's kind of immature she might, you know, they might both be a little older than I think, but you know, in the film, it's really hard to get a full grasp, but, um, yeah, it seems coming of age to me. Yeah, yeah, that's a curiosity too. It doesn't really tell you the age of the the girls ever. You so you don't know if they're college or high school or or what they are. But I'm guessing they're they're supposed to be I, high school. Yeah, I think so. When they say that she's being sent away to school or whatever, stays at yeah, school, boarding school, boarding yeah. school. Yeah, I think that probably implies high school to us. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They never do distinctly come out and say, hey, they're this old. Right. And Mona's right. a bit precocious just right from the start. <laughs> right, right. So. Yeah, and, and it is summer, so so obviously this is, there's no school going on anyway. Um, and and, it, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about the different um, types of life they each have and such um yeah so it takes place near uh outside of manchester uh, or at least that's where it was filmed and a very rural section right uh probably 18 20 miles outside of manchester uh england where black sabbath is from and among other bands and um that's pretty much it It's, it's like a rolling hill type of thing i mean it, it kind of looks like new england to be honest well, i was um, gonna say that it feels like the south in some ways <laughs> yeah yeah for for it, the religion part of it when you get down to the religion part of it it kind of feels that, that way yeah yeah that's true yeah uh the disc uh actually is a pretty good disc because it has a uh director's commentary on it and uh a lot of the um the religious people in the film are actually um, real extras that were, um, I guess, born again Christians that were were used as as uh, references of how the religion works because he was trying the director was trying to make um, be as authentic as possible. They um, definitely felt authentic, I think, to me. Yeah, having gone to church my whole young life and stuff, and um, Baptist, <laughs> it seemed similar in some ways. Right, right, yeah, and you and you you do live in what is considered the U.S. South, um, so you probably see a lot of born again Christians in that area demographic. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Right, yeah. Where I'm up, where I live, it's mostly uh, Episcopals and Catholics and Jews. So yeah, we yeah. don't have too many. Believe it or not, I knew less Protestants when I was growing up, and even now. Than, than I knew any other religion, which 
and, and as a whole group. So I'm not even talking about Baptists or Methodists or whatever. I mean, everybody I knew was, was Catholic, Jewish, or Episcopal, even though Episcopal is Protestant, but I mean, they were still outnumbered by the Catholics and and stuff, so it was kind of interesting. Yeah, when um, I moved to Minnesota, there were a lot of Lutherans, and I had never experienced that before, so same, yeah. same you know, it's interesting. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. It's because the demographics of who settled where, because Minnesota is all uh, Swedes and Norwegians and stuff, so yeah. they, they those nations uh, that they came from were, are like 99% Lutheran. So, um, all right. So uh, I guess we can uh, get into uh, various things. Uh, but before we we go into spoilers, because we're going to critique and review the whole thing and discuss what's going on in the film. Uh, before we get into spoilers, I guess we can discuss just general stuff about the film itself. Um, the cinematography was pretty solid for this, I thought, um, because a lot of the film is from the valley looking up to the hills or the hills looking down to the, the valley. And some of that set, or not, I don't know if it's called set design, but, but whatever it is, uh, location sc- scouting. And yeah. I know uh, Palakowski uh, did some of the scouting himself uh, because, again, um, at this point he wasn't uh, an Oscar winner, so he had to... Um, do a lot of stuff himself before he could get funding. Um, but it doesn't surprise me that um, the cinematography was really good because of just the location um, and, and that part of uh, England. Anyway, um, now, uh, what, what, do you, what do you got to, uh, general about the film that you wanted to bring up that isn't necessarily spot, uh, spoiler? Even, it could be plot specific, but not spoiler. Um, I mean, I, I thought it was directed really well, and considering that it was the first film for um, a couple of that, you know, the two main actresses, I thought they did a fantastic job. Um, the acting was definitely on par with the directing, and like you said, the the um, cinematography is is amazing. It's real nice. You get to see a lot of some different parts of. Um, over there in the UK. Right. Right. It, it reminds me of what Watership Down probably looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, now, uh, uh, so the, the religion you brought up, uh, how, how uh, you felt, felt it was authentic. Do you think they were fair to the religion too? I mean, they didn't make them look like crazies or, or do you think, I mean, because I don't, I don't know. If, I don't think the film, was trying to make religious folk look bad at all. It's just that the wrong person happened to join the religious group and, and he was a sociopath probably. Um, <laughs> well, I think he was even authentic, in, you know, in, in the beginning until <laughs> some things started happening. But yeah, I think it portrayed, you know, like a born again religious experience, you know, that it's, it had that feel to it to me. Yeah. And I've experienced it and been around it. So, um, yeah, it felt pretty authentic to me. Right. I think it helped that he, as you said, that he used, you know, real born again Christians in the movie because that definitely would make it more authentic. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and actually, um, yeah, I I think I miss 
representative because not the religion itself, but what the film was trying to do. Because what it is is there's a character in the film who's an ex-con who joins the um, Bonigans and does a lot and stuff, and then he just has a breakdown because of things that happen around him, and he quits the religion um, kind of rudely. And so, <laughs> so for folks who are worried that may be religious that would listen to this podcast or, or like to see this film, uh, there is nothing in the film that really is um, offensive to born-again Christians. Yeah, nothing at all. I think that it just portrays born-again Christians as they are. And I don't, you know, there wasn't anything offensive. Most of the time, they're just talking about belief. And, it's, and you really don't get anything out of that because it's just them having a conversation and somebody passing through or whatever. So you really don't get too much out of that. Sure, sure. And and in, in England, for folks who don't know, uh, most folks over there are Episcopal or Anglican, if you prefer. Um, and the director, um, he's being from Poland originally, he, they ex- actually what they did was um, when he was a young kid, him and his mother – um, went to Germany for a quote-unquote vacation with permission from the government, and then they asked for asylum to, so they would never have to go back because at that time Poland was communist. Um, and uh, Paul Polokowski, um, he was Catholic, and and he said that um, being a Catholic, uh, yeah, he, you know, to he had to find authentic born again Christians to portray it correctly. Cause obviously he had no idea what to do, uh, for the religion. And this was similar to, uh, uh, the exorcist where, uh, uh, Max von Sydow playing a, a Catholic priest and he's from Sweden and, and a Lutheran. He never had any idea what a Catholic was for any reason because he never really met him where he lived. And so he had to do, research and be trained to be into the Catholic religion to understand it, to actually try to be authentic in that movie. And so Paul Wawski kind of wanted to do the same thing here, where he wanted to bring uh, authenticity to uh, one of the side stories. And that's actually interesting, too, because we're talking a lot about the religious part, but that's really just a side story to the main story. Um, Yeah, well, and it's more interesting considering that, you know, I mean, religion has a a little more violent of a history over in um, the UK than it does here. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but you don't see any of that either. It doesn't talk about anything like that. It's just very minor. There are some religious people (laughs) pretty much and how it affects the one character is pretty much all you get out of it. Right. Right. Um, Let's see. So uh, let's talk about, um, a little bit about the class structure, I guess, over in the UK. Obviously, neither you or I are British, so we don't really know how it really is over there. But, uh, um, there, I mean, we, I'm not sure where you live, but, uh, for example, the town that I live in, um, there's, there's, you know, like $2 million, $3 million houses, and then there's just regular houses uh, that are, you know, like 200000 So, you can see, and you know, everybody goes to the same, if you're a 15 year old kid, everybody still goes to the same school and, and stuff. So you all go to the, the, 
the town high school and you could be friends with filthy rich people and you could just be a regular person or a lower class, working class, whatever. Um, while over there in the UK, at least the, the, how it's portrayed here, is there, they, this family is the type that, when it comes to the bourgeois, are the type that send their children to very privileged schools where they're actually boarding schools. And, and um, where I live, New England, we have a lot of those. You know, Phillips Exeter and Philip Andover and Groton Academy and Lawrence Academy and, you know, uh, Middlesex Academy and on and on and on. So we have a lot of those folks and most of the kids that go to those schools come from out of state. Um, and yet um, there are neighbors, the schools are, and yet they feel very much isolated from the rest of the community. Um, I actually but, went to a boarding school. Um, I didn't board. I was what was called a day hop. So I took a bus, went to the school. I had to work during the summer so I could go there. Um, but there were people that, yes, came from families that were very rich that boarded there. And, you know, basically they were dropped off for the year and went back home, you know, for Christmas and summers. <laughs> and uh, it was very different for them than it was for me. Interesting. And basically, um, the Emily Blunt character named uh, uh, Tamsin is one of those type of people who's uh, a very well-to-do family. Um, and like a lot of wealthy people, they have the quote-unquote summer, summer cottage, which is usually uh, another mansion, even though they yeah. call it a, a cottage. Um, and then... Uh, Mona, whose real name is Lisa, but her brother calls her Mona Lisa, so she just goes by Mona. Um, she and her brother live in the bedrooms above a, a bar called the Swan that her mother used to own, uh, but her mother died of cancer, and so the two of them just live there alone. And um, the brother if we, we learn is, is an ex con for burglary assault or whatever. And it had been in the, the jail for a few years. Um, and when he came out, he became, uh, he, I guess in jail, he became a born again, Christian. And so when he comes back, he decides to close the bar and, uh, dump all the wine and booze down the sink because, um, uh, I guess it's sinful, I guess. Yeah. There, yeah. There's some religions that don't, there's no drinking. Right. Um, and so the two of them, the brother and sister, unfortunately, um, have some issues, uh, because obviously the brother isn't the same person that she knew prior Though it's almost like a a one-sided argument, right? Because she's the one that's all bent out of shape about it, while he is is not really the person that um, is angry with their situation, or at least it appears he's not. At but. first, yeah, it appears that he's not, but he is. He does seem conflicted, and she does seem to be able to get under his skin. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so the film actually pretty much, and that's pretty much the setup of the film. Um, we, the film actually, I was shocked because I, I had forgotten. Uh, again, I, the last time I saw the film was three years ago, and I forgot that Emily Blunt's character Tamsin comes in right away because I, I always thought her character was like 15 minutes into the film, but actually she's introduced pretty much right away, five minutes in. And then we get the backstory of Mona. And then we go back to Emily Blunt. And I forgot about that. Um, so basically, uh, how do we want to talk? Well, who, who is Emily Blunt? What, what is it? What, what's her character all about? Um, her character seems to be someone who is part of a well-to-do family and is just enjoying her summer. Um, they, Mona had been <laughs> riding a motorcycle that has no engine down a, down a hill and just kind of laid down in the grass. And Emily Blunt comes along riding a horse, which I'm sure is part of that bourgeois um, scene that you're talking about people with a lot of money that have horses and that summer cottage. And so she, they come across each other like that. Um, and they just start to talk and she, yeah. Mona kind of follows her on her way home. Um, and kind of gets an idea of where she lives, like up the hill, <laughs> way up the hill. Right, and that, right, that's when Mona goes home and sees the all the alcohol being poured out. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, so she's she's actually um, she's actually meaning uh, Emily Blunt, um, what we call um, a very confident person um, and outgoing, whatnot. Um, she, she actually was perfect casting for the film, uh, based off of her, her background, because she is from a bourgeois family in real life and does, is an accomplished cello player and a horse rider and various other things. So, um, she, she, uh, fit the, the role perfectly. So, uh, uh, Paul Likowski was, was kind of lucky to find her. Um, and uh, other things we learn about Mona, too, is that she's having an affair with a married man, right? Because yeah, yeah. later that night, uh, so she's in, intrigued with, with Emily Blunt's character, uh, Tam, Tamsin. And Tamsin is, offers to her to come by anytime she wants um, you know, I'm going to be here all summer, that type of thing. And, uh, and then, yeah, then she goes home, finds her brother dumping the booze and she gets pissed. And then she, um, is having an affair with a married man. And, uh, he kind of, um, it's, it's, He's a dick. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He basically says, I don't, I'm tired of this. I'm done with you after he has sex with her. And she gets mad and kicks the car and is like, you could have told me that before. <laughs> Right, and he says, "Yeah, as if I'm gonna, I not bang you first. Um, and I, I don't know the laws over there in that part of England, um, but obviously it is an adult with a minor. Um, when you think about it, yeah, she's just in in the summer waiting for the next year of school, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but I don't know. Again, we don't know the ages uh, of these girls, which is kind of interesting. We don't know if she's 18, 17, uh, or even 19. I mean, we don't know anything. Um, yeah, so she basically gets dumped by her married boyfriend. Um, and he seemed a lot older, too. He seemed like he was like middle-aged rather than... You know, he, he seemed close to mid forties, maybe close to fifty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so uh, that's pretty much the setup for the first ten, fifteen minutes. But uh, Mona is kind of a lost soul in a sense because she. I mean, I don't, I don't know if she has any idea any future never mind yes yeah, she doesn't seem to have a job she just wanders around and smoking and drinking and um yeah how she lives i, mean, I don't know <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean you know you know a lot of high school kids do that during the summer or even during the school year smoking and drinking but oh yeah um that seems but, to be all yeah. she does though <laughs> yeah yeah and, and she doesn't seem too bright either no, no, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of points in the film that she s- says things that are a little off or um, uneducated, like, and stuff. And, and I think that's intentional because it's trying to make a, um, a mirror image of the two girls, uh, Mona and, and Tamsin. Well, it's um, making with, that class distinction very apparent, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, all right, so the so the next day, uh, Moner, yeah, the, I mean, just stories are basically about Moner and Tamsin, um, and mostly, uh, even though even though uh, they co-star, th- this is uh, the Moner story more than the Tamsin story because it focuses her perspective on almost everything. Um, so let's talk about that relationship that, that builds up. Um, obviously you probably knew that it was going to turn into a girl crush type film just for the fact that, um, the reason we chose the film was it's part of the LGBTQ, um, storyline for you know for the podcast um what did you think of of it when you when you first saw it well they have a chemistry so it worked pretty well they um you can feel it pretty early on uh especially the chemistry that mona has for for tamsin um you're not totally sure about tamsin just because they are from different worlds and you don't really know what she what her agenda is at this point and you can tell Mona's looking for friends, um, or more than friends. So I think it did a good job of that chemistry and making the buildup slow, but made sense. Right, right. The um, I guess I guess the the attitude of Tamsin is. She kind of shows herself to be like 
she cho- shows two sides a lot. One side is she's very confident, very cocky, um, and all that. And then there's another side where she shows um, how terrible her her life is due to her family situation, or at least that's what she says. So she she talks yeah. about how how her, her sister was an anorexic and uh, died of anorexia, mostly because of no love from uh, the father or mother. Uh, the mother is a wannabe actress that um, basically uh, is never home. Uh, the father uh, has a assistant that he's supposedly had an affair with and is always off having an affair, uh, you know, the, the afternoon delight type stuff. And, um, and so she's like the poor little rich girl in a sense, at least that's how she, she shows herself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is you never really get confirmation, but I think everything is sprinkled with some truths and some falsehoods. So it's quite interesting, I think, because you never get any confirmation either way, one way or the other, except for some things when you get to the end right. of the film. Right, right, right. Yeah, you, you got generally based off of the some things, as you said, that we finally get confirmations on. You could probably say that pretty much answers the question for everything. Probably, but there's one that the father's affair. I'm not sure of that could be, you know, one that I could see. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll get to that scene too. Um, because, uh, the first two times I watched the film, I, I wasn't too sure. And then, or, or I was sure after the end came around to the film, but when I rewatched it last night, there's one clue that may say that the the car in the driveway is correct. Mm-hmm. But again, though, you know, uh, we don't know who's in the house, what's in the house. Right. Right. You know, it, it could have just been having beers with a friend. We don't know. And, and we never find that out, but we'll, we'll get into could all be, that. Could be your grandmother. For all we know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, all right. So let's throw out the spoiler. Uh, alert now so we can just talk about anything and everything so we won't uh, ruin it uh, without people deciding whether or not they want to continue with the episode or come back later after they see it themselves. Uh, The film, as I stated, is on uh, DVD um, and has director's commentary and whatnot, Uh, but it is on VOD too, and and, uh, you actually rented it, right? I did, yes. Um, On Amazon, it was well, it was three ninety nine to rent or four ninety nine to buy. I gotcha. rented it. Normally, gotcha. if it was horror, I would have bought it for sure. But since it's not horror, I, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's actually a good price to for purchase four ninety nine. That's not bad at all. Yeah. Uh, that was prime. Uh, right, right. Uh, but I know it's available uh, on all the VOD services. You can purchase it or rent it, uh, whether or not purchasing it has any of the extras that the disc has i I don't know not on amazon i can tell Uh, you that unless there's some way of finding extras that i don't know about 
Gotcha, gotcha. Um, all right, so um, are we in the spoiler territory now? So you know, if we if there, if something comes out that is spoilery, you've been warned. Um, so, um, yeah, when I when I first watched the film, I went in. I think I went in blind. I just heard it was a good film. And I was into all those uh, indie, foreign, art house dramas, you know, all that type of stuff back in the day. I still am in a sense, but I'm more picky now. Um, though th- this would have still fit even today. Um, and I-, I did not know that it was going to be a uh, LGBTQ type of film in a sense. And I'm, I'm still not even convinced that it really is. I mean, it is, it is, but I like, I'm not sure if either character is truly what they would call straight gay or not, because I, I, I think they're more fluid, the, 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 both of them. But yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. It's well, in one of them, I think it just could be because she just decides that she's going to try that because you know what I mean? It's just, she, she has nothing better to do. So this is what she's doing this summer. <laughs> That's right. what her character feels like to me. Yeah. And I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I, I think so. 100%. So I'm not even convinced that, um, yeah. So again, we're in spoilers that the Tamsin character is truly, uh, LGBTQ. Obviously, she um, does LGBTQ things that would qualify to make her gay. But if you asked her, I could t- think she's the type that would, like you said, may have just been, hey, let's try to do this for the heck of it type of thing. And, and you know, young kid, I'll try it. You know, I, I'm, I'm the the uh, alpha you know, I got this this person that wound around my finger, and why not? You know, do, do go go about and do it. I guess. Um, yeah, and I would say that the other girl is, um, she's just looking for somebody that will love her. Yeah, and I don't know what her what she really wants besides that. You know. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because I could see if it was a a boy instead of a girl that showed interest in hanging out with her. I could see her, this whole film being different where the Emily Blunt character could have been a boy and the film could have gone the exact same way. Yep. You know, so, so that's one interesting thing about this film is that the, the love story or... Or relationship that happens is really not about sex at all. It's about one uh, loneliness for one, for sure, and the other mm-hmm. one, um, uh, I guess I'm trying to think of a word that is not not mean, but um, when you take advantage of somebody, well, I don't even know what the word would be, but I guess taking advantage is good enough. Yeah, yeah. And in this case, it just happens to be uh, Tam- it's a girl, Tamsin, that is going to be the user rather than a, a boy. Because this type of film we've seen many times 
where there's some boy that, you know, some girl falls in love with a boy, and then the boy you find out is a dirtbag at the end or something. Um, and that's kind of... Well, I would almost say she's not even a user in this particular case, because she's she's pretty honest and straightforward about where she's going to end up at the end of the summer. In the beginning. Yeah. She's, yeah. you know, home from school, and she's going to be going back. Right. So from that perspective, I think she's honest. <laughs> one of the, yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's one, there's one part where that changes, though, right? Because we have we have Tamsin finally says we should run uh, when Natalie. Uh, well, Natalie presses the actress. Mona says we should run away together. Um, Tamsin agrees, even though it's very. Um, half-hearted because you know when they're spinning around the the globe to look and she randomly mona randomly picks siberia uh tamsin's like reading a book and not even paying attention and then when she says okay what about here and she goes siberia there's nothing in siberia why would we want to go to siberia you know and then she has to spin it again so but it's enough that mona is actually believing that it's going to happen where she could pack her bags and, and, you know, get ready to run away, um, in September. But, um, all right. So let's, let's talk about some of the, uh, set pieces that are shown in this film with the relationship of the, the woman. Um, and then of course we'll, we'll bring in the brother's story too. Um, but the woman stuff. So it's, it starts out as pretty, innocent of where just two girls hanging out uh trying to have fun um smoking drinking um talking sitting around you know that type of stuff in the backyard drinking yeah smoking. yeah the huge backyard because they're pretty far from the house but you can see the house in the distance right right and they also have a t- always got tennis court back there tennis court and- yeah exactly or squash or something like that yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and then one of the, the first scenes that made me think that Emily Blunt's character, Tamsin, was um, a little different was when she starts talking about Nietzsche. And, um, you know, you should read Nietzsche. Um, and I forget about how God is dead and, uh, she goes on and says, there's nothing, all that matters is here, you know, right now, this, that, and she's pretending that she's like this real intellectual person. Um, and it's almost like name dropping rather than actually knowing anything. It was a little of that and a little bit of made me think maybe she was kind of towards the sociopathic end of things. <laughs> well, if you're going to read Nietzsche, that, that, that could possibly be true. Right. Uh, that's what I mean. When you're quote, when you're saying that's what you need to read Nietzsche and that it's so awesome, I, I get a little worried. <laughs> yeah. 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 But then when she says, yeah, you know, you should reach Nietzsche and, and, uh, Mona's like, doesn't comment back because, not because she isn't necessarily interested, but because she has no idea what Tamsin's talking about. Yeah. Tamsin then drops the line, or maybe you should read Freud. 
and that made me say, okay, she's now just throwing out any name now of any philosopher or important person just to kind of show off too. I would say that, but I think that those are very specific ones that are a little out there in some ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, Freud talks about the id and things like that, which are the stuff that, that, you know, you know, but yeah, that's a fair point. Cause you know, the, as we know, both Freud and Nietzsche talk about the human uh, ego and how it determines um, how people will be or, or should be. And to choose those two basically philosophy type people, um, obviously, yeah, that, that shows, I mean, she picked them rather than just say, Hey, you should read Shakespeare. You right. Know? So it's kind of, it kind of gives you a little glimpse into her character. And I think it gives you a little glimpse into what you're going to see from her throughout the rest of the movie. <laughs> right. Now, um, there's a scene that comes up shortly after where they're listening to, uh, an opera singer from France. Uh, and that opera singer, um, is Edith PF and um what happens is uh they talk about um Tamsin talks about how oh yeah this opera singer is uh very interesting she had three husbands uh they all died under mysterious circumstances one of them was a boxer who she killed and then she got arrested, but since it's Paris, uh, France, where um, I guess uh, love and all this other stuff are forgiven easy, the, you know, the craziness when it comes to love, <laughs> that mm. she got off and whatnot. And so I actually um, looked her up last night, and yeah, she was married th- three times. Uh, no one... No, actually, she was married twice, I think. But either way, there was no scandals. There was no scandal. I mean, the only scandal she had was the boxer she never married and had an affair with. And then the boxer died in a plane crash uh, that had nothing to do with PF, Edith PF. And then uh, she herself died at the age of 49 from drug and and booze. But... But there was no, so, but the, everything she said about how she murdered everybody and whatever was lies. And so, had I known who Edith P.F. was prior to seeing it the first time, I would have immediately said, "Okay, there's something fishy with Tamsin." Because yeah, <laughs> that if any, in other words, anybody who's watching the film and knows who Edith P.F. is and hears what. Tamsin says about her would immediately say that's all bullshit. There's something. This is all. This girl is lying. Um, so that was a that was an interesting uh, little uh, Chekhov's gun. I think that was put into the film if you knew who Edith PF was. Well, and he probably knew the director probably knew that it was obscure and you know only a few people would catch that. You know what I mean? Like. It just was one of those little tidbits he was putting in there. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, now, some other things that were interesting about those, these early scenes is uh, the framing of Emily Bunt in all of them. So, like, when they meet, she's basically, like you said, laying on the grass, looking up in the sky, and then has her eyes closed, and she opens her eyes, and there's this beautiful woman on a beautiful horse with a, a sun glare, uh, or sun flare, I should say, um, looking down at her. And so, obviously, male or female, you're going to look at that as a, a, you know, and you took a picture of Emily Blunt, you know, with the sun gl- flare and on the horse, how it's presented, you know, the cinematography of that shot. Um, anybody would say that's that's an amazing shot. And then when Tamsin... Uh, when when Mona goes to visit Tamsin the very next day, and she goes into the house, and she goes up the stairs into, I guess the the conservatory, and, or or uh, study or whatever you want to call it, and sees Emily Bunt uh, barefoot with the cello, uh, the giant cello, and she's playing this beautiful music. And the sun again is is shining through the window in the back and all that. Um, again, makes Emily Blunt's character, um, I guess that, or not the character, but the way it's framed, that her as a person, the, the whole scene is as like another beautiful shot. And I think this is all intentional because it's trying to get Mona's character to not necessarily fall in love. But at least um, be, I guess, uh, amazed at this creature of Tamsin. So, in other, in other words, it's framed as if we're looking at Emily Blunt the way Tamsin is trying to look at Emily Blunt. The way Mona is, yeah, I would agree, and I think it's um, it's the one point where you see the the actual truth and beauty of Tamsin rather than what she portrays everywhere else. Right. Make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cause she yeah, is but... great at the cello. I mean, she's just yes. amazing. And, and when you see her there, you're like, wow, she's really good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, Tamsin, I mean, not Tamsin, Mona sees this, and, and yeah, I mean, she just sees this amazing creature, creature with quotes, um, both times on the horse and then playing the cello, and is just, like, overwhelmed with how someone that's this talented, this beautiful, this wealthy, I guess, this uh, confident, this smart, um would take an interest in her. Yeah, I'd say that's a fair assessment. Uh, right. Now, uh, let's talk about the brother. Uh, so, we, like we mentioned, uh, Mona has a brother named Phil. Um, and, you know, we mentioned that he was ex-con and all that and stuff. Uh, what's, what, get into some of that story. What, what, do you, what do you have about that? So you really don't know how serious his, his ex-con background is. You just know that it was bad enough that he spent some time in prison um, and he's gotten out and 
while in prison, he seems to have become born again, and he's become associated with a group of born again Christians. Um, and he's planning some t- type of Christian rally um, where they're going to go out and do something. You don't really know what it is, but they're sitting and talking and playing. You just see scenes once in a while whenever Mona's back at the bar turned into church, basically. Um, so you see him a little bit through all that and you get a sense of, I get the sense that he has some anger in him and his sister brings him back to that anger. Um, and somehow he can't escape that whenever she's around. Yeah, actually, that's a good point because I mean, all right, let's say he's a bad guy in his prior life. All right. Whether or not. We, we want to laugh at him or not for becoming a Bonacan Christian. You know, some people would, some people would say, Oh, well, you know, he's getting his life straightened out. While other people will say that, Oh my God, he's becoming crazy. He needs another crutch or whatever. But either way, you could say that he's at least, I mean, he's, he's definitely a little selfish because he doesn't, he just wants to shut down the bar without talking to his sister and dumps out the beer booze when, you know, they could have used that to, to keep the bar open or sell it. I mean, you can still sell that stuff. And he also, uh, but generally, I mean, he seems like he's trying to get his life back together. Um, and, and maybe he's become very devoted and a one trick pony in the sense that the most important thing or the only thing that matters is, is the Bible studies and all that. But you're right. I, I think his sister is kind of, she's not in a good place either. So she, whether it's jealousy at her brother or whether she really does not like his religion, she kind of is the person that brings him 180 by the end of the film. Right. Because I mean, yeah, he, um, I mean, she's the one that laughs at him and yells at him and, says uh you're not the same person i miss the old person that you used to be even though the old person was the one that would you know got in trouble uh burglarized beat up people and landed up in jail so you know he wants to leave that behind and whether he's doing what hansen does is actually the worst thing to him right (coughs) that's that's true that's true and well and not only is it mean but she also calls him out for being a phony and i think inside he knows that and that's what causes his turn to the 180 at the very end yeah that's 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 true yep yeah and and uh and then yeah he becomes yeah he becomes the person he was prior so who knows what his future is going to be um yeah so basically he has bible studies kind of almost every night based off of how the film goes anyway. And it seems like he may be the leader because he turns his bar into a Bible study or a church. And he invites all the people there. Uh, And if he's not the leader, he's at least one of the leaders. Yeah, I would agree. And he wants to be a mover and shaker in the group. And he comes up with this idea of building a giant cross that they, he wants to 
bring to the top of the the hill because this, this is an interesting town i mean we have a lot of these towns up here you may have them down where you are too but you have a lot of hills and mountains in the area mm-hmm. and the towns are usually in the, in the valley similar to the podcast that we did for dark discussions whisper in the dark where there's this town in the valley and then there's all these hills around it um and no one lives up on the hills but the, these hills are smaller hills and the, unlike in in vermont the, these hills are um treeless so it's just all fields and he wants to bring up to the top of it uh have a cross that looks down over the the town and it's a huge cross (laughs) yeah yeah it's definitely big yeah yeah it sure is it sure is um and so that's really where his storyline is uh the the religious um classes or, or or Bible studies that he has, building the cross, and then eventually have a um, um, I guess the, uh, some sort of festival where they, where they're going to put the cross up and actually you know quote unquote party versus you know how how Bonnegans would would party um, without like a mass around the the, the cross I guess. Um, so before we get into his, you know, the, the story arc was his, because when you really think about it, his story arc <laughs> after that really only is, comes around when he comes to look for Mona. And, and the re- I don't know, do you, do you think when he keeps on coming to Tamsin's house, do you think he's coming to Tamsin's house to just see where she is, to get her away from Tamsin because she think he thinks Tamsin is a free spirit and therefore not good for Mona? Or do you think he's going there because he know, he thinks Tamsin's hot and he just wants to get a glimpse at her? It could be all of them, to be honest, but I don't know. I think that could be the case, that there's a lot of different motives that he has. But I also think that he and his sister are codependent upon each other. And part of her codependence breaks down when he go, when he goes to religion. And so that's when she finds Tamsin. So she's starting to move away from him and being at all dependent upon him to Tamsin. Which really, you know, when you get down to it, isn't healthy either. (laughs) And is going to eventually, you know, not end well. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point. She is very dependent on... Somebody, um, somebody, yeah, exactly. Yeah, she she can't, she doesn't have a. Uh, well, I mean, she is independent, but I mean, she she need she's always dependent on someone else, and um, we'll I, we'll talk about that and and the ending and what that means about that. But now I'm thinking that maybe that there's a turnaround on that at the end. But um, yeah, so I yeah, think so too. I agree with you. Um, So one of the big scenes is, uh, well, there's a couple of scenes. Well, there's there's a couple of interesting scenes that are important. Like, for example, when she comes to visit Tamsin once, she sees the father leaving in his Porsche, a red Porsche, and and uh, in the driveway, and and she says, is Tamsin home? And he he says, yeah, she's, you know, just up in the house. And and that's kind of, of a Chekhov's gun for a later scene. And then there's a scene where 
after they talk about Nietzsche and Freud and all that stuff, and they pass out drinking beer, wine and smoking cigarettes, um, Tamsin is gone, and she, and she basically left um, Mona on the squasher or tennis court asleep. And then Mona goes in to the front door. No, one of the windows looks in and sees Mona. I mean, sees uh, Tamsin with her father and mother uh, eating. And and, um, it's portrayed at at least at that moment when she looks in the window that they're all bored. But it's also kind of cold, too. Like, she left her out in the field and her parents don't even know that she's there. Right. And she's up there having dinner like nothing happened. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it was kind of weird because, you know, you you could you would have thought she would have said, hey, my friend uh, Moan is here. Could she hang, stay over for dinner? Right. Or she would have just woke up Moaner and say, all right, I got to get in. You know, my parents are coming home. I'll talk to you tomorrow. But she just but she leaves did. her there. Like, I mean, anything could happen to her out there asleep. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's it also... It's it's definitely a little weird. You could look at it and say, oh, it's just a stupid kid. You know, she just, maybe she, again, it's through Mona's eyes, the whole film. So we don't know if Tamsin woke up and said, oh, was thinking, oh, she's sleeping. I don't want to disturb her. You know, she's in my backyard on the tennis court and it's a grass tennis court. No, you know, she'll be fine or whatever. Or if she was just being like we discussed earlier, which is maybe indifferent or sociopathic where, you know, she doesn't look at Mona as anything more than an object and wakes up or or just leaves her and goes in, you know, got to continue my life. Who cares? You know? Yeah. That's kind of feeling I get actually. Well, as, as the film goes on, it it most certainly probably is right. But yeah, but, but at the beginning, this is still fairly at the beginning, their first real hangout that, I wasn't sure yet when I first watched the film. Yeah, you're just getting little clues at this point, and that's one of the clues. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple other scenes. There's a scene where uh, the next day, they, uh, Tamsin had actually goes to the Swan, their home, uh, Mona's home, and says that she wants to uh, uh, buy her an engine for her moped yeah um so and again you know someone that's that wealthy that costs nothing um but it's kind of a nice thing to do yeah it was nice yeah definitely there was no there was no gain for her from that you know what i mean right she was just helping her out there was there was nothing to it beyond that right the only thing that it does is probably makes Moner like Tamsin even more, right? Right, exactly. It pulls her closer into her orbit. Yeah. Um, so, uh, let's see. I got, a, I got a handful of scenes here. So, we have... Um, let me open my little spreadsheet here of all the scenes I have. So, we have the... Uh, um, father and mistress scene, possibly. We have the confronting the wife 
of uh, Mona's boyfriend. We have uh, the first time they have intimacy. Uh, we have the scene where Mona, or I should say Tamsin, and lets Mona take the lead and show her her hidden, um, I guess, uh, water hole or swimming hole. Um, yeah. Where and the then waterfall is. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then we have the scene where uh, Phil comes uh, to, to the top of the hill and finds um, Tamsin topless and how that begins to uh, lure him into uh, looking at Tamsin a little differently than prior. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so I, I guess that, those are the, the f- five main ones that I, I think I'm thinking of before the the cross, but there could be others, but we can go through, let's go through. Isn't there one the, where yeah, they're the, in like a bar and something weird happens? Yeah. I think that's right after the cross though. Oh, it is. Okay. Okay. I think, yeah. Hey, I'm trying uh, to remember when that happens. That was a weird scene. I didn't quite get that one. Yeah. Well, the reason what it was is, is they were on the mushrooms and we'll, we'll talk about that uh, when we get to it. Um, but all right. So let's talk about some of these other scenes first before we get into that scene and the cross scene. Um, uh, because the cross scene actually has an important scene between Tamsin and Phil, too, where she asks him questions. Um, all right. So the father. And mistress. Let's talk about that. So, as we, we heard earlier, the father, Tamsin, talks about how she's depressed about her life. And one of the things is is that her father is uh, having an affair with some woman, um, I guess, in town. And the only thing that makes it possible that it's true is that there is a red or maroon car in the, in the driveway. And I think it, it probably, it looked like the car, the Porsche, but I wasn't sure. Yeah. I wasn't sure either. Right. And so they're outside the house and Tams is talking about how they're probably having sex right now. And, um, how he's, you know, he's a jerk and I can't believe he's doing this to me and my family, you know, he's supposed to love us and all that. And then Mona breaks the car window and they bolt. Um, now let me ask you this. Did, did you, based off of the scenes we saw earlier, did you believe that Tamsin's sister died and that her father was having I a did. fair, yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, I bought it. It felt, I, it I felt was... believable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, uh, not Emily Blunt, but the character she plays, Tamsin. Um, yeah, I mean, all the stories she said. I mean, there's some little hints that some of it may be off a little because, for example, when she starts asking questions to Mona, like you know, what happened to your father? She didn't know my. I don't know my father. What happened to your mother? She died of cancer. And then after she asks, she gets the answer of cancer. She says, "Oh, my sister, she died of anorexia." And I don't know it. 
but she's very emotional felt. when she's talking about it too. So it seems real. Yeah, yeah. Because when she brings it up, it was almost like one, trying to one up Mona, like, oh well, my sister died of anorexia, or get a, attention for it. But then, as she talks about it, you're right. It's it sounded genuine and truthful. And the same with her father and the because when they're outside that house, she acts very emotional about it. Now, part of me thinks after seeing the whole thing, you know, this is just her. None of that might be true. And she's just trying to get back at her dad and she gets Mona to do the act rather than herself of throwing a brick through the car window. You know what I mean? I feel like she's manipulating Mona after I've watched the whole movie rather than this necessarily being true. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it could. Yeah, the reason it could be true is because there's a red Porsche in a driveway down in the village, and we know the father drives a red Porsche. But we don't know if it's actually the father in that house, and even if he is in that house, is he banging some woman, or is he? Is it a business associate, or is it a? friend you know we, we don't know anything All well, I know ultimately is, i still feel like it's her trying to get back at her dad for whatever reason not because of what he's doing but because that's what that's how she's acting out right it's possible uh, and it could also be just a complete made-up story as well right right he might, it might not even been him at that that place she just threw a brick in a car window that wasn't anybody they knew Right. And he, or if it was her father's car, she was just making up the story anyway. And then when Mona breaks the window, she was like shocked, but also thought it was funny too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so there's a lot of ways to look at it, but um, generally that's what happens. And, and at least what Tamsin says is, is going on uh, because she says, let's go. My my father's having an affair. What's you want to see where where the woman lives, and then they go okay. Let's go and then they go check it out. Now uh, let's talk about um, confronting the wife of the guy that Mona was banging. What did you think of that? <laughs> it's again Tamsin manipulating her to go there and do that. It's really cruel to the wife, and I think that kind of sums up Tamsin's character. <laughs> you know what I mean, like the kinds of things that she's willing to do. Um, you start getting back to Nietzsche and Freud and everything. <laughs> um, and it shows Mona's, you know, somewhat easy to manipulate. Right. Yeah. And I actually kind of thought it was kind of humorous too, um, because it also, um, uh, brings Mona into her orbit even more because she says, let's get revenge on your ex-boyfriend for him dumping you and treating you like garbage. And of course, instead of bothering him, they, they go to the wife, knock on the door and say, my friend had to have an abortion because you're a husband. What do you think of that? He's cheating on you. He's left this girl in the lurch and all that stuff. And, Mona knows it's fake and she's actually kind of almost giggling when they're doing it. And so I 
think Tamsin did it just because it was something hilarious to do, and she's just a mean person. But you know, because why hurt the the wife? But Mo, uh, Moan is looking at it as like, oh, this is cool. We're we're getting revenge. Plus, my buddy here wants to help me out to and do this for me. Yeah, it definitely brought her closer into her orbit for sure. <laughs> they got closer together after that for sure. Right, and I think this is when they they have the the first intimacy moment after. Um, or do do they do they kiss first at the waterfall place? They kiss first at the waterfall. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so they they and she they, gets uh, her to try on dresses and stuff too first, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because she is the same size later. Yeah, yeah she's the same uh, size as, as her sister Sadie. And so she wants to try all of Sadie's clothes on. Um, and of course, all these clothes are really fancy. And, you know, um, Mona doesn't have the money to buy clothes like this. So she's like amazed um, to be able to, you know, try all this stuff on, you know. Um, and then, yeah, and then things go to the next level and, uh, uh, they, for whatever reason, Natalie's not Natalie. Um, uh, Tamsin's parents aren't home that weekend. And, uh, so she lets Mona stay over or, or stay late over or something like that. And yeah. then, yeah. And then they have, uh, uh, sex basically. Um, and uh yeah and so they they go to it goes to completion and then they are interrupted because someone rings the doorbell and it's the brother right so, they don't answer the door right they just look out yeah exactly at this point yeah right and that's when i think emily Blunt, it becomes interested in phil's character because uh again they're there, um, Emily Blunt's naked, and she walks to the window, and you see her profile and all that. And and again, we're looking at her as if we're looking out of Tam's, I mean, uh, Mona's eyes. So you can see how Mona, again, is is looking at. It's basically everything's framed as um, around Emily Blunt. How Mona feels about Emily Blunt. And that's what I think what is kind of cool about the cinematography. So every frame that Emily Blunt is in, at least for the first hour and 15 minutes of the film, makes her look like exquisite because we're looking through um, the eyes of Mona who looks at Emily Blunt's character as this amazing being, you know, and that, is important and paying attention to her and all this other stuff. Um, but I think this scene here is important because it, she asked why, how did your brother know you're here? Or why would he think you're here? And then she, she says, Oh, uh, I told her, I told him. And then they talk about the brother a little bit and she kind of gets interested in hearing that he's a born again Christian. And I think at that moment, that's when she thinks she wants to, she's thinking about maybe trying to uh, sabotage him as well yeah yeah um in a way i think she's sabotaging both of them 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just working class folk that don't mean anything to her. And uh, except as a curiosity or something to play with in a sense. I do think that she she's less malevolent with uh, Mona than she is with her brother. And I think of I think she does actually like Mona to a degree. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because with Mona, she's just uncaring. But with the brother, she's she purposely tries to make a fool of him. Yeah, and mess up his newfound goodness. Yeah. Um, so I guess this leads to uh, the cross scene. Um, yeah, he, he for some reason invites them to this cross-raising. Yeah. Now, did you feel like he was trying to make them better people? <laughs> Do you think that was his intent? Or was he just inviting them because he wanted to have Tamsin around or well you know what I I, I don't I, I'll tell you why because I, well I think he wanted his sister there because he says you know you're my sister I want you to be there so I think that's the only reason why he wanted the sister there not for any malevolent or, or a trickster reason to make her become a, a Bible thumper or whatever and then her the sister says can I bring Tamsin with me and that's he says, yeah, of course you can. So I don't, I don't think he. It is. It, it was. Pre, I mean, even though you know damn well he he thought Tamsin was hot because everybody would think Tamsin's hot, even if you even if you're religious. I don't think that was the reason why he invited her because I don't think he did invite her. I think they invited he. It was Mona that asked if she could bring him. Yeah. Bring him. Um, and whether or not he was going to say yes whether he thought she was hot or not because you know anybody who wants to there, you know being a born again Christian you're going to be inclusive in the sense that you would want anybody to come because you want to you know spread the word to everybody you know so why not and then um, and this this was was this after I think this was after he came about them sunbathing naked. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was after he comes across them. Yeah. So, so he already knew she was a good looking woman because he gets to see her in the buff too. So, yeah. So, um, I think that was important for one reason, because when, after they do finish the, the celebration of raising the cross. That's when Tamsin starts asking him about questions about the Bible because they're walking down the hill. Everybody, the whole group of, you know, a hundred people are walking down the hill and Tamsin intentionally runs up to talk to Phil and ask questions and, and also say, I feel, uh, yeah, uh, that I could, you know, I'm curious and, you know, what's this about? And, you know, I show an honest curiosity, even though after she laughs about it with Mona. Well, and at that point when she's talking to him, you can see a little jealousy in Mona. She's standing behind and kind of watching as she's asking the questions. 
and you just get this kind of sense that she, she's not liking what she's seeing. Right. Because she feels yep. Tamsin's attention wavering and going to her brother. Right. Yeah, yeah, that, that's actually a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would have loved to know what Tamsin, I mean, Mona was thinking when her, her brother came upon them with Tamsin sunbathing nude and yeah. what she thought there because um, again, like you said, she obviously is now becoming a little possessive of Tamsin. And I think that's the reason why one of the, one of the reasons why her reaction at the end of the film is so, um, I guess, extreme. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that later. Um, all right. So let's, uh, see what, where we want to go now. Uh, I guess we can talk about the, the dance hall now. Right. And this is, this is, this scene happens after, uh, after they talk more about, uh, Sadie, the sister who died of anorexia. And they find the magic mushrooms in the room. (laughs) They have to find the magic mushrooms. And then they also do the Ouija board. Oh, I forgot about that scene. Yeah, they do the Ouija board, and they're like, neither of them are pushing it. <laughs> and they talk yeah. to Sadie, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. So, supposedly, neither of them pushing it, but based off of, uh, off of what happens at the end of the film, we pretty much know that uh, Tamsin was pushing it the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Had to have been. Yeah. Now, at that point, did you think this film was going supernatural, or did you think... I did not, because up to that point, it was so grounded in reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of was, at that point, when I first saw it the first time, I knew it wasn't supernatural either. And I was, uh, being, this this was a big, big red flag of Tamsin being a kook. Because she's making a joke about talking to her sister in the afterlife um and if the sister was really dead would she be that nonchalant about doing something like that yeah she's a little cavalier about the whole thing (laughs) yeah um so yeah the mushrooms so they find the mushrooms in the system they get messed up (laughs) that's right and she gives uh tamsin i mean i mean moner one of Sadie's old shirts to wear that night, and they go out partying. Um, the the party is interesting because they go to this big dance hall, but it's and and of course it's now through the perspective of people, or specifically Mona, uh, on mushroom acid. Um, but it's the type of dance hall that you would find in a local town. Uh, so it's not going to be like a fancy dance hall you would find in a uh, big city. So yeah, where everybody knows each other. Yeah. And, and it's all, and it's a mixed crowd. So it's not all like young people at a hip pub in, you know, Manhattan. We're talking about multi-age people all there. Uh, a lot of them straight laced. 
that are just there to have you know dance for fun with their spouse of thirty five years. I like the VFW or, or something. <laughs> That's what I was thinking too. Yeah, <laughs> glad you brought that up. Yeah. Um, and then also a lot of the born again Christians are there too because Phil's there too. Yeah, 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 and they have to throw him out because Bona and and Tamsin begin to harass uh, the the singer on the stage and then kind of act way too flamboyant um, and and the various other things that kind of um, are disturbing the rest of the guests at the the dance. Big time, yeah. They, I mean, they're just making a huge spectacle of themselves. Right. Um. So, uh, what do you, what do you want to? What do you make out of, about all this scene here? Um. I don't know. It's kind of a it's kind of a weird scene. It it um it kind of shows. It's kind of the beginning of everything breaking apart for each of the three characters. Really, when you get down to it. Yeah, I mean, the very beginning, because, you know, they're doing these mushrooms, they're kind of acting out, you're kind of getting that Tamsin really doesn't care about anything, um, because she's willing to do just about anything in that scene, and Mona's just a follower who's going to kind of follow along with whatever Tamsin does, Um, and Phil is starting to kind of lose control. Right. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, that's an excellent point that you brought that up because you're right. Um, at this point, this is when um, Tamsin is becoming bored of even her friendship with Mo. Very good point. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what's happening. She's becoming bored. Yep. Yeah, because this is the part where I was talking about earlier, where you know when they start spinning the the globe. And she's just reading a book or doing her nails or something while um, owners like live in this fantasy about, oh, we can run away. We can do this. Why don't we get away from all this terrible? You can leave your terrible family. I can leave my crazy brother. And Tamsin's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And Mona's like really into it. And so that's that's a really good point um, that they're all beginning to break because Mona is beginning to become clueless and live in a fantasy land about running away with someone that um, is now actually becoming bored and indifferent. And her brother is getting more and more angry, which I can assume is more like how he was before he went into jail. Yeah. Um, All right. So I guess we could talk about the scene where uh, the brother comes to, uh, Tamsin's house again to get Mona. Uh, to you know, well, we don't know why he comes, but he says, "Yeah, right, I want, I need to speak to Mona." Uh, this is an important scene, I think, because this is this is the big scene you were talking about where um, she really drives the, the knife into. Uh, oh uh, yeah, Phil. She basically comes on to him, and he actually at first is responding, and then she starts laughing at him um, like, like I would ever do anything with you. <laughs> and she basically calls him a f- Christian fraud because he came on to her after she kind of pushed it into that position. 
Yeah. Well, it was, it was kind of funny, too, right? Because she sits him down. She goes, oh, since you're here, I have, I have some questions for you. You know, you can w- wait. Uh, you know, t- uh, Mona's coming home, coming back soon. She had to go out for a second. When, in fact, Mona's just upstairs listening. Right. And uh, Tamsin starts asking questions. Not asking questions, but saying that, you know, I'm lonely and I'm a sinner and I don't know what to do. And how did you get God to come or Jesus to, to fill your life and all this? And then... She goes. She then she starts slowly turning it into like a weak woman that is willing to throw. Wants you know. You, you know what I'm saying? It's like, like she starts uh, moving closer to him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know, and and puts her grabs his hand and puts his his hand between her breasts. Like you know, you hear my heart. That type. Yeah, of stuff. yeah, exactly. You know? And and then um, she starts leaning in, like you know, what do I do? Uh, I'm so sad, whatever. And then he starts leading, leading in. And then, then as they're about to kiss, she literally laughs in his face and she goes, I knew it. You're a phony. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because at first he is trying to tell her about Christianity and being good. And I mean, it doesn't last long, but he does start that way. And then he starts falling to this attraction and feeling like she wants him because she's making it seem like she does. Right. Well, and, and the thing is, is that we could say that, okay, okay, maybe, maybe he's a phony, but, but the thing is, is that here's this pretty girl that's lonely. That's coming kind of slowly coming on to him. And to be honest, he's lonely too. I think he's, really yeah lonely. oh think, yeah yeah you know and and here's this girl that's that's showing interest in his is i guess we'll call it a quote-unquote hobby right his religion and he also knows that she's beautiful and he's lonely and so i i think i think it's kind of natural that he he would now now again that doesn't necessarily mean what he's doing is right for the religious belief that he has, because maybe I don't know what it is, but I assume that, you know, they would say that, you know, no marriage before sex or, 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 you know, don't um, use religion as a crutch to find a mate or who knows. I, I don't know. I'm just saying, but either way, um, Let's say he's breaking his, his religious vows by, I guess, coming back onto her because she's coming onto him. But again, I think it's because I think everything about him is loneliness. And and though he became a born again Christian and jailed, I, I I don't know. I, I think he just wants to live a normal life and with someone religion, close to him. Yeah, yeah. I think the religion was a way to get out of the anger and criminal element that kept on screwing up his life in the past. But he was willing to go to the next step and, you know, okay, I, I fixed that. Now, if I could find a woman and here's a woman that may like me, maybe I would um, become happy and, and now be a happy person. So I, I think he wasn't just looking at her to get some teal, and I don't think he was actually looking to uh, ha- ha- get close to her because he 
wanted to intentionally or non-intentionally, you know, f his religion. I don't think it had anything to do with that. I think no. it had to do with just being a person that was. Yeah, only. and she got him at a vulnerable moment, and I think it shows the manipulation of Tamsin because she is trying to drive a wedge first off between the two of them trying to drive a wedge between everybody and everything. Actually, like she wants to separate him from his religion. She wants to separate Mona from him, him from Mona. And she wants to see how she can manipulate him to break his, you know, religious beliefs and things like that. So every time she's asking him a question, she's sizing him up. So for this future scene where she's going to tempt him. And she also knows that Mona's right upstairs and could walk in at any moment. So you're really not sure even how far she'll take it at that point. Is, you know, Mona going to walk into them having sex or, or what? Yeah, that's true. That's, that's a really good point. Yeah. Because she, she if she wanted to, she, there was many things that could have happened there. Yeah. Uh, if they started kissing and making out and Mona walked in, how, what would Mona think? And what would Tamsin's intentions have been to do that? In other words, so if she had gone further and actually did the kissing and didn't laugh in his face, then she was doing it to piss off Mona. But instead she, she, you see what I'm saying? In other words, yeah. when, when I first watched the film, I wasn't sure which way she was going to go because if she had, the way she went, she destroyed him and basically that's when he flips out, finds her on the stairs, listening, grabs her and brings it, throws her into the car and takes her away. And, and, um, locks her in her room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Tamsin's watching, um, the whole thing and the other th- way it could have been where she could have just kissed him and then the Mona could have ran and said, what are you guys doing? And you, I can't believe it. And I think that would have been probably less cruel actually to everybody because it would have yeah. just en- ended the relationship and, um, and then she wouldn't have destroyed Phil. Um, so anyway, yeah, so this is, this is the, the final couple scenes here, right? Th- that were like crazy because, yeah, you said you said he locks her in her room, and then he goes back downstairs for his Bible studies. Yeah, oh, and then, you know, but you know what's funny is that she is the actual one that, meaning Mona, is the actual one that finally puts the last breaks the breaks breaks him completely because of what she, she does, does break right? him completely. Yeah, but he's been primed and prepped by Tamsin at this point, so he's just a step yeah. away. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so let's talk about this scene here. So uh, let's talk about it. The, the, the Bible study scene and Tamsin in a room and what happens and all that. What do you got? So you got? He, he locks her in her room, uh, Mona in her room, and he goes back. He goes downstairs to worship with his um, fellow um, people, his fellow born-agains. And while they're doing their stuff, she's making a lot of noise. And eventually, I, I think... She, does she make it sound like she fell over or something? Made a really loud racket. And yeah, so exactly. he, go, he goes up to see what's going on with her. And it looks like she's killed herself. Right. Now, what did you think? Did you think, did you think it was, re- I thought it was real. I thought she really did it. No, I didn't think it was real. I, I figured really? she no, was, 
Yeah, I figured it was a ploy for her to get out of the room. Um, just because she did not seem like the type to do that. And her fixation on Tamsin was too strong, I think, for her to do something like that. And so I figured she was just doing some ploy so she could get out of the room. Um, see, the, what, I, what I thought was is that she thought she was never going to be able to see Tamsin again. And so she killed herself. So I, I, you were more... Uh, intuitive than I was. Well, and that would have that would have been an interesting end, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. no, yeah, she she doesn't kill herself, but she she basically laughs in his face and you know spits on his religion, and she runs away. She gets her oh, suitcase. No way. You forgot. You forgot. Wait. He he kicks her. Oh, right. He does do a little beating up on her, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, yeah, he does a, a drop kicks her once. Um, but, oh, well, the thing is, is that he comes in and he's like crying, going, oh, my God, I can't believe it. You're you stupid, stupid girl. What did you do? What did you do? And then she opens her eyes and, and you know, does like the exorcist voice. Like, I, right. And, Which she had done but, earlier in the movie, too. <laughs> the yeah. exorcist voice. She did that. Yeah. Throughout. So she, he drops her to the floor and then he drop kicks her. And it was a pretty big dropkick. And then he goes downstairs to try to get back into the um, the Bible study. And then he has a he flips out. Yeah, he, he kicks everybody out. out. Yeah, yeah, and he starts using profanity. Get the fuck out of here, you know, whatever. And so you know he's done. And I mean he's he's snapped completely. And she, like you said, has packed her bags. And then she leaves the building. And heads back over to Tamsin's house. And you know what's interesting is that that's the end of Phil's story. Yeah, it is. You don't see him again. Yeah, so his end of the story was is that his trying to make himself be better, whether or not it was a crutch or and not true, the point is is that he 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 failed, and and I, and I think that's intentional because I th- I think, and I don't think it is intentional. It wasn't to rip the the religion. What it was is to show the cycle of destitute that this working class family of Phil and Mona are stuck in. Yeah. So no matter what they do to try to better themselves, at least for, and especially for Phil whether he's sincere or not, but at least trying, it doesn't matter. Because like, like a lot of religious people that fall out of religion, they fall out of religion because bad things still happen to them, even though they're re- very religious and they think, you know, Jesus is with them or whatever, or whatever your religion is. But, you know, if you still get fired from your job or you're still... Um, have your car break down and you don't have the money to pay for it or you lose your house or, or the, you know, the girl or guy you like, you know, dumps you or cheats on you or, you know, anything. And you're have all this faith. A lot of people will just say, you know what? There's no God. And they, they just quit. I'm not saying that's everybody, but a lot of people who are, are apt to uh, have faith, will lose faith if bad things happen to them. And even though these things that are happening to Phil aren't really that 
bad in the sense it's not like he lost his job or whatever. But there's a lot of things that happen to him in this movie that make him just get angrier and angrier from being insulted, uh, from you know, you know. The, I mean, let, let's look at him. There's there's the the scene where he um uh continue, right, he gets laughed at by his sister a lot, and then the things that break him are like you said, uh, Tamsin uh, screws with his emotions and then calls him a phony, and then Mona says she wants to leave him, thinks he's a loser, and then pretends that she dies, you know, suicided. And he just snaps. And then finally he says, it's all crocked. The religion ain't helping me. And he kicks everybody out. And yeah. so you know that he's worse off than he was at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, all right. So let's talk about the 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 scene at the end. The end not the very end scene uh, back at the waterfall, but the, big st- the pre-end scene, which is at the the um, mansion. What do you got? Yes. So she goes back to the mansion to get Tamsin to run away with. Um, and when she gets there, she goes right into the house. Like she's part of the family first off, which I thought was interesting. And all, all of uh, Tamsin's family is there at this point. So she goes in and she sees the father sitting down. And I think he's with some other people in that room, right? Can't remember. But she at least sees the father, and she goes up the stairs, and she goes to Tamsin's room. And in Tamsin's room is Tamsin sitting there very docile, and her mom is packing her bags. Um, yes. <laughs> and so she's sitting there docilely, and they start to have a conversation, right? And it's kind of weird, because the mom doesn't, the mom doesn't really talk at all while they're talking in the room, right? You don't really, it's like the mom isn't even there. Yeah, she says hello. But that's that's it. it. She's, yeah, yeah, but they have this whole conversation where she talks about how she had been kicked out of school, but now she was being sent back, right? Yep. And um, you always knew I was going to be going back to school. Right. Uh, it seems like a very serious conversation to be having in front of the mom. It seems like it should have been a private conversation. And right. Well, yeah. I agree, but you know, it's almost, it's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting scene because you're right. It's like the mother is, it wouldn't be a conversation you usually talk to someone with, with the mother there, but you can also look at maybe the mother is like one of those airhead bubbly people that are clueless. So she doesn't like, Oh, this is just a, a little fight between my, my, daughter and her friend i guess i don't know i, don't I think know. it's more than that I, I, yeah i think it's more than that though i think it's like it's like mona is even beneath her mom's notice yeah all right okay that could be possible yeah and at this point the mom is totally beneath her notice she sees her initially she gets the low and then you only have eyes on tamsin through the rest of that scene right yeah yeah exactly and their conversation together um, right. so basically Tamsin basically tells her that, you know, this was it. I'm going back to school, whatever. And so Mona leaves in a huff and as she's trying to leave, 
Well, I think she said one other thing, too, that pissed her off, which was, you you knew this. You knew this was all just for fun or something like that. Right, right, exactly, yeah. You knew it was just for fun. This wasn't really serious. And so she's got – meanwhile, she's got her bag in her hand. She's there with her bag to go run away with her. So to her, this was totally real, and now you know that to Tamsin it wasn't. And it gets worse. So as she's she's upset, she's leaving, guess who's alive? Her sister. (laughs) And her sister comes out and says, hey, can you give me my shirt back? (laughs) Because she's wearing her shirt. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so she takes the shirt off, gives it to the sister, and then she leaves the house. Um. Yeah, that was a that was a big drop. When when you when you see the sister alive, then you knew everything was fake. Because, because all right, it was still a possibility the mother was trying to be an actress and didn't care about her daughter, and it was still a chance that the father was a adulterer. But when you find out that in his, and when she when they talk about Sadie's death earlier. Tamsin's crying her eyes out, like the flooding with tears, mass depression. Yet when you see Sadie's actually alive, you know, then you're like, no way. And now you're like, okay, everything's freaking a lie. Everything. You cannot trust anything that Tamsin said. Some might be true and some might not be. Right. And more likely not true. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You can't even believe that she cared about her at all, exactly. especially now, because you see that she doesn't care about her. She's going back to school and whatever. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, no doubt she had to go back to school so, and she was never planning to leave in the first place. But to put get to that situation that far into the situation where she destroyed her relationship with her brother basically and she gets to a point where she wasn't even expecting to ever see uh moner again in other words when moner showed up he, she was kind of surprised oh moner why are you here you know? yeah exactly what are you doing here <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah so yeah that was it's it just shows how uncaring she was. Like you said, I, I don't even, it, it's not even uncaring. It's like, if it, the reason I say it's not like uncaring is because if she was uncaring, she would intentionally be mean. And I mean, like really mean about it when I think she didn't even know that she was being mean because she didn't look at Mona as a person. Right. So in her eyes, yeah. yeah. So in her eyes, meaning Tamsin's eyes, she wasn't being uncaring because because there was no caring in the first place. There there was nothing. It was just hanging out and whatever. That's it. Right. You can't care for this person who's just a prop or this person who isn't even in my class. She's just somebody that she's going to make my summer more fun. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's like a basketball, you know, uh, you know, what can I do outside? Oh, there's a bit, let's go shoot hoops or, or uh, what can I do? You know, it's like the horse. It's just something fun to do. I'll ride the horse. 
You know? Right. I'll play yep. the cello. It's it's fun to do. Oh, uh, let's see what else. Oh, I'll hang out with Mona. Yeah, it's just something fun to do. It has nothing. To, there's no care or love or like at all there. It's just phony. Pure need on her part. Yeah, whatever yeah. she needed. She was... And, like, money didn't mean anything to her either. That's why getting the engine wasn't as, I guess, um, altruistic as you would think, because it made them able to travel around more easily. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was well, still self-interest. Right. <laughs> and that's that's the thing. I'm thinking they're younger kids, um, because if they were older, Tamsin would have been having a car yeah no likely yeah, yeah yeah and since she didn't drive and didn't have a car it it makes me feel like yeah you're right so so getting the engine for the moped or scooter was a way to go around town basically right yeah yeah um so uh yeah so mona leaves pretty much the same way phil left and as a complete wreck, as a complete, completely destroyed, because she has to take off her top and walk out in her her slip, basically. Because hey, that's my shirt, or you know, and so she has to give it back to Sadie. Um, she finds out her, everything that um, Tamsin told her was lies or whatever, and that Tamsin did never even cared for her, and it was just. Like we were talking about that she was a prop for Tamsin. So she literally walks out of the house with no dignity at all. None, yeah. And she had invested everything in Tamsin. Basically, totally treated her brother like dirt. She had kind of nowhere to go back to. I'm sure her brother would take her back. But in her mind, she had nowhere to go back to. And she was just going to go on this journey. Now, you've got to look at the naivete there because... She had no money. So how did she think they were going to get anywhere or do anything? You know? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give it... I'll play devil's advocate here. I think it, it was never said in the film, but I was thinking that she was assuming that Tamsin was going to bring a lot of money because Tamsin had access to a lot of money. And that's where I think she was naive. And that plays into how she got played. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of times we see films where let's run away together and, you know, how are they going to run away? And if they do, they're going to be living on the street because they have no money or or a job or skill. But in this case, it seemed more realistic, at least in a naive person like Mona, because she said thinking that, okay, we can actually run away because we'll have money because Tamsin is wealthy. Right. Yeah. I, again, though, it was never said. No, no. Yeah. But, but that's that's all I can think of why she would think it would work. Um, all right. So let's talk about the last scene, right? Um, so she doesn't want to go home to her brother, who is now a psychopath again. And she doesn't know where to go, so she goes to her happy place, which is the waterfall, right? Yep. And then uh, someone figures out where she she would, would go, right? She knew Mona good enough. Tamsin knew Mona good enough to know that her happy place 
would be the most likely place she was going to go. Now, and do you think she went looking for her out of selfishness? I think she did. I think she was like, hey, I'll be here next summer. I need to at least be on a little bit of her good side. So she was going there to kind of mend some fences so that she'd have that to come back to. Yeah, you know, I I think it was a couple of things. I think it was definitely that. And I also think she had a little guilt. But I also think she was hoping to get a little more booty call. (laughs) That could be. That could be, yeah, yeah. And and she considered her her possession, too, so. Yeah. Right, exactly. And the way she walked out. She was back to when she was independent again, in a sense, right? Because, all right, well, she doesn't like me anymore, but she's my possession. I got to fix this. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So let's talk about that. So, so what, 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 what do we got here? What, what happens? So she comes down and they have a conversation. And again, more about the, you know, you knew this was pretty much inevitable and, you know, and. Um, Mona brings up her sister being alive and, you know, the, the clothing issue and all that, and is very upset with her. Um, meanwhile, Tamsin's thinking she can repair this and you're, you kind of feel a little bit like it can be repaired because through the whole movie, Mona's been pretty compliant about everything. Um, so you're thinking maybe this will be repaired. So they both get in the water um, and they start getting close. And then Mona goes a little over the edge and starts choking her and pushes her under the water. Um, and at this point, you're not sure what's going to happen. And eventually right. she lets her up. I still say that the movie would have been better if she had killed her. Would have been a great end. <laughs> but yeah, she lets her up out of the water. And for some reason, Tamsin cannot understand why she just did that. Right. Well, and that that's that shows a little more about Tamsin too. Mm-hmm. And then of course Tamsin's not saying you crazy or you're insane or you know, and starts using insults, throws insults at Amona, but it's like she, yeah, she's that. I don't know. I don't know if it's clueless, but it's definitely unconscious in the sense that, you know, when I say unconscious, I mean she doesn't have a conscience. Yeah. Right. So she's that clueless to not think that someone would be angry. Basically, she convinced a girl to fall in love with her over the summer and then. She doesn't even break up with the girl. She basically just says, "What do you mean? Uh, you you really thought that was something? What do you mean?" Yeah, and, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, so so it wasn't like she didn't even think it was relationship. She was just like you said, looked at uh, Mona as just a a toy, like anything else, like 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 the horse know, she was riding like earlier, the horse she rode, or like playing <laughs> the cello, or or the you know, the tennis balls in the backyard on the court, you know? So, yeah. So it was very interesting. And again, you know, we, we kind of probably gathered this just for the way she, she played Phil. 
Um, I mean, she's not a nice person. If she was a nice person, she wouldn't have done those terrible things to Phil. She would have just said, oh, that's interesting. And, you know, you know, and that, and be done with it and not try to destroy him. Um, I actually almost then, think what she did to Phil was worse. Yeah, absolutely. She, she, uh, yes. She, I mean, Mona had a relationship and the relationship basically died. He had a, a, faith that he was building and she pulled the rug out from under him <laughs> right yeah absolutely one thing um i didn't bring up earlier was mona was was banging a married guy and again we didn't get learn enough about it to really figure out what was going on whether she thought he was going to run away with her or whatever but it also makes you question her mor- morals in a sense too and again i'm not saying i don't know people i know you know plenty of people that have had affairs unfortunately um both um as neighbors friends or even family members but um i i wouldn't i mean and, and it's bad but um and you know it's bad but i don't think i don't know if mona Again, I said she's kind of um, not. Uh, what's what am I for? Uh, not too smart. I don't even know if she thought that was a bad thing, or you know what I'm saying. I, I mean, I think she was having a yeah. fear with this guy, and I don't think she was looking at it as a bad thing at all, which is fine. Right? fine whatever, that's you know her business. But I think she was clueless to understand what that whole situation was. You know, I that, agree. And she was equally clueless when they went and accosted the wife and what kind of damage she was doing there. Right now. I mean, he pretty much deserved it, yeah. but it really hurt the wife. And that was really cruel. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also I don't, um, I don't know if, and, and yeah, and so so yeah, so you can believe that her naivety. Again, I think it's all naivety. I don't even think. Yeah, I don't think. I don't think. Yeah, because I don't think she knows that she was doing anything stupid. In other words, I don't know if that she even knew she was going to be played by Tamsin. Never mind that she was doing something bad by cheating with a married man. And so, yeah, I don't, yeah, she's just, well, I don't even think she understood cruelty until it was done to her. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That's perfect, dude. You're right. Because yeah, she's, she had, was willing to be cruel to the, the wife of the guy she was banging. She was willing to break windshields even, or, or window on a car. Yeah. So that's a good point. I think she, yeah, she did not. Yeah, and and the way she treats her own brother, the terrible way she retreats her brother. So oh, yeah. you're right. I I think I think she didn't know what cruelty was until Tamsin did it to her. Yeah, that's. And then it point. all came out, and that's when she became enraged. Yeah, she saw what she had been doing, and what had been done, and that yeah. was just the final straw for her. She actually grew up in that moment. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, and then there's the very last scene, which is she leaves Tamsin at the watering hole, and she decide and she's walking. We don't know where she's walking, but she's she leaves, 
And she has a small grin or smirk on her face. What do you think that... I don't know. I'm not sure what that was supposed to signify. That felt weird to me. And it was kind of like the end of Midsummer, where the girl's smiling. I mean, I kind of understood that more than I understood this one. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, at the end of Midsummer, you're right, that movie. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, I so, didn't get why she was kind of grinning at the end of this. Well, I wouldn't even say grinning, smiling a little bit at the end of this yeah. one because she had nothing to smile about except for maybe she grew up. I mean, <laughs> right. she didn't really get one over on Tamsin because Tamsin didn't really understand anything that she was doing was wrong. Right, exactly. That's a tr- good point, too, because Tam- yeah, Tamsin didn't even see that. Yeah, so she didn't really get anything on Tamsin. She didn't really get anything fulfilled because she's where she's left now is even worse than she was before the summer began because her relationship with her brother is all uh, has to be repaired. Uh, she doesn't have any relationship as she was hoping and whatnot. But again, it also could mean the smirk could mean anything. I mean, one way to look at it is she now doesn't have to depend on other people and she feels that way. And that could be it because that would be the, the main way she grew is by seeing that, seeing her dependence on other people and how negative it affected her. Right. I'm still not sure I'd smile about that at all. (laughs) Right. Right. Because she still has, she still, stuck in the same situation i mean probably worse probably because, worse yeah <laughs> yeah because the the bar is gone is closed down i mean by the end of the film the sign the swan which was the name of the bar has been taken down it's not even there anymore so they weren't thinking they first... also have to leave wasn't he like going to be selling it or something i can't remember yeah maybe not yeah. yeah but but yeah yeah i mean the smile was is ambiguous, no doubt about it. Um, because there's nothing really to smile about. But not from what I got from the movie, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess you could read anything into that. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, all right. Uh, let's see. Anything else that you wanted to bring up related to this film, uh, or scenes that we missed that you wanted to talk about, or, or something that. I think we've got all the beats and all the scenes. Um, yeah, I think we pretty much summed up everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of things that they're trying to do in the film, like we discussed class and stuff, because, you know, the Emily Blunt's character obviously represented the upper class and how they toy with the lower class people. Um, so even though it's just two stupid girls, you could say it also could be, uh, a symbol of the classes themselves, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. Emily Blunt could be the symbol of the upper class or the bourgeois or the monarchy or the, or the noble people, I should say, and how they just use the lower class, which would be, um, Mona's character, um, as a um, a toy, who are always su- 
suppressed by those folk and whatnot. Um, there's also um, the obviously the LGBTQ thing. So there, obviously, there's, that's an important aspect of the film. Um, how uh, religion is important in the film, but it isn't necessarily going to solve your problems unless you really have faith. And if you just use it for to help yourself, it may not be enough. Um, also, um, what else? Uh, I, I'm also thinking, you know what? I'm also thinking that smirk at the end represents her her nickname, Mona Lisa. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Kind you don't of know a what, smirk that's kind of got pain or pleasure. You're not sure which one. Yeah. What's what's that? What's going on behind all that? Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so there's a, there's you know those are the the thing that, there's symbolism throughout the film, but I mean those those beats are pretty pretty strong. And then of course, like you said, there's the um, coming of age as well. Um, well, and when you think about it, you brought up the nobility and the peasantry, basically. You've also got the clergy. It's kind of all represented, really. Yeah, that's true. What you would expect in, in England, Britain. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, you know what's one thing that's funny is that they really never show the cross. So I don't know if they actually put up the cross. Uh, there is a scene where they've got it up. Um, but they, they never show it from. They never a show distance. it finally while they're yeah from a distance. I don't think they do show it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that was probably uh, budgetary reasons. Is all yeah, I probably. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so uh, a couple last things. Um, yeah, the film uh, box office of five million cost one million, so it made money. Uh, it won a BAFTA award, which is, uh, the, uh, British, um, top, one of their top, the top awards of uh, the British Academy of Film and Television Art Award. Um, got, uh, various other awards as well. Um, critical reception, 90% on Rotten Tomatoes out of 90 reviews. That's pretty good. Uh, yeah, that is pretty good. Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars. A movie that is more about being an age rather than coming of age. That's interesting. Uh, uh, let's see. A.O. Scott of the New York Times said, A triumph of mood and implication. Uh, someone named James Berardinelli of Real Views called it a gem lost in the hype of Hollywood blockbusters. So... Yeah, so uh, let's see. One place, Auto Straddle, listed the film as the 19th best film out of uh, lesbian movies of all times. Out of 102 lesbian movies of all times, it was listed as number 19 by Auto Straddle, which is a uh, online magazine for the LGBT community. What I find interesting about that is kind of like what you were talking about earlier. It's we're not really sure what either of them are. And 
I don't know that it portrays any relationship in a really good light. If that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. It's not well, a positive relationship, really. It's a negative right. relationship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said earlier, you could have replaced Emily Blunt's character with a boy, or, or, or specifically, because, um, you know, I could see this girl uh, hanging out with this boy that's wealthy, and the boy toys with her. And at the end, she finds out he never really liked her and was just toying with her. Um, so the relationship um, of the LGBT, the lesbian relationship, was, was very inconsequential to. The, it was, you know, but it would have been like every other movie if it was boy and girl. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it definitely adds an aspect to um, the film in that way. Yeah, because it it's, it makes it original and unique. Um, but there's really no LGBTQ um, uh, not what's the word I'm looking for? Not uh, not news, but uh, commentary. Yeah. Really? Right? I mean, there really yeah, isn't. I don't think so. No. Yeah, it's because, it's because the religion has doesn't even know, doesn't, I mean, the religion has nothing to do with the gayness, right? So that, there's not like religion being bad to gays or vice versa. And there's no uh, real identity of like, I don't know who I am and, you know, or am I, do I feel like society is being bad? You know, you know what I'm saying? So it really, it's just really the relationship between the two, the two girls. And that, that, that's why I say that, you know, you could have just replaced the blunt character with a boy because again, there was really no commentary on the queer experience, even though yeah, and there was, there was nothing negative or positive about it portrayed yeah. in the film. Yeah, exactly. It nothing. just was, which I think is good. It made it like it, you know, it's an everyday right. thing. There's nothing really to see here as far as that's concerned. This is just another relationship. Yeah. And actually, that's kind of a good thing, too. Yeah, because, yeah, we've seen enough films about uh, the L uh, LGBTQ experience, which are those type of commentaries about society and bigotry and all that other stuff. And, th and this one was different because it shows it as just a normal thing. With two and, abnormal people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the LGBTQ part of it. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it really is actually. Yeah. So, all right. So, uh, since we've recorded for two, over two hours, I guess we'll just have our, our final thoughts. Um, oddly, uh, the next film that we're going to talk about is very similar as well, where, um, it, with this one, where one character, but it, it's a little different. With one character, there is no commentary on the queer experience, it's on the, the, um, social economic experience and then the other character in the next film it's on on both the commentary on the queer experience as well as the uh social economic so so they're they're very similar but uh we'll we'll talk about that other film next time um and uh we'll we'll, we'll uh, just get into our final thoughts here so uh why don't you uh give your final thoughts for our 
the my summer of love. All right, so I'm I'm really more of a horror aficionado, so I'm not as big into dramas and stuff. But this is it, this was an interesting character study. Um, the acting is impeccable. The directing's great. The cinematography is really well done. Um, it, you know, if you didn't have English accents, it could have really been anywhere um, in the world where there's you know a high a high amount of Christianity. Um, but the movie was really well done. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I I recommend it if it's the type of movie you'd like to see. Yep. All right. Um, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I enjoyed this film a, a whole lot. Um, uh, like I said, I, I saw it basically when it first came out. Um, it's it's definitely uh, uh, I guess an art house uh, film. Uh, so even though it's a drama, it's more of an art house drama um, than a regular drama, and it's also um, an art house drama just for the fact that it is. Uh, a foreign film from from the UK, at least in the United States, it would be considered art house for uh, a number of reasons. A lot of check boxes for art house, um, and also, as you said, Barrett, a character study as well, which also makes it an art house film. So, if you're into art house films, this may be uh, a film that you would enjoy for sure. Um, but the main reason to see the film is. Um, the cinematography, the direction, um, the acting for sure. And, uh, if you're fans of Emily Blunt or the director, uh, Paul, Paul Lekowski, um, then this is an excellent film to check out because it's them in their early stages of their careers before they became, uh, the superstars that they are now. And so it, it is a curiosity also for that reason too. However, uh, it does deserve its ninety percent. Uh, so, if as Barrett said, you, you know, like you said, you know, if it's not your genre, it may not be your film. But you would probably still like it just for the fact that it's a good film. But if it is a type of genre that you like, then then this is a a must see for sure. One and minor I, point. Yeah, I was going to say one minor point is that um, you can see that Emily Blunt is just a good, as good an actress back then as she is now. Yeah. Which yeah, I think no... is pretty interesting. Yeah, it is interesting actually, because, um, you know, you think she's good now, obviously, and she really is good, but, um, it's not like her growth, uh, to become a great actress. It's, she was always a great actress based off of exactly. this. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's an excellent point. Yeah. And, and, and actually, uh, same with, uh, the director, uh, as well as if you want to look at him, I mean, uh, only a few years later, he he's, has two films that you know were up for Oscars, um, including him for being a director as well. So um, definitely, definitely um, uh, shows it because this film too is is uh, phenomenal um, as as a work of art. Um, so yeah, big thumbs up for me. All right, so um, so once again, this is my summer of love, uh, starring. Um, Natalie Press and Emily Blunt and Patty Considine, uh, directed by Paul Palikowski, a screenplay by Paul Palikowski and someone named Michael Wynn, based off the novel My Summer of Love by Helen Cross. Um, that novel uh, actually came out in 2001, so it was only three years 
um, removed from from the movie. So it wasn't like one of those old properties that said, "Hey, let's make a movie out of it." Was a uh, a book that was probably still popular at the time. Uh, pretty short film, eighty six minutes, so uh, not too bad. And uh, you can find it pretty much anywhere. Um, film. Uh, VOD is and and the disc is pretty solid too. If you like the film, you should get the disc because uh, there's an excellent director's commentary on the disc as well, um, and uh, uh, very informative. Um, all right, so next next uh, week, I think, or we, I think it's next week, right? We're doing uh, another episode. Is it next? We week? are. We'll be going over the movie AWOL. Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, and then we'll get back into our uh, regular genre cult cinema uh, starting in July. Uh, so, uh, once again, my summer love. And with all that stated, all right, why don't you lead us out? Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, come back next time when we'll discuss AWOL. Beep.